this is Pull Yourself Together with E. Shaver Booksellers. Hello, I'm Jessica, a lifelong lover of books, wide-ranging reader, fan of obscure British literature, all things Douglas Adams, long sentences, music biographies, the Oxford comma, always up for travel, except during COVID, and of course, Jane Austen. And I'm Melissa, an eclectic bibliophile and all-around nerd who also loves Jane Austen, comics, and cooking. Together, we run an independent bookstore in Savannah, Georgia. Each episode, we discuss the books we've been reading and recommend. Well, hi, everybody. So Jessica and I are going to be a little briefer than usual with the books that we talk about um one because we do have a rep who joined us and you'll get to hear our conversation and with she her. talked about a lot of great books uh, brings up some that are going to be on the fall list so mm-hmm. we don't want to take away from that but also we're dragging a little bit today yeah we both just got our second covid shots yesterday and we were both like ah i don't feel bad at all my arm's a little sore and as the day goes on today we're both like uh, i don't feel great yeah i'm kind of tired (laughs) i mean i'm i'm i feel good not good in the best sort of way in that (laughs) yay immunity for a while yeah but but you know having the second covid shot um aches and pains and and just Just, kind of generally run down yeah just just ready for a nap yeah and but you all should go get it yes we we've Fully recommend it. <laughs> yes. But we're going to be brief, which yeah. b- maybe this is a blessing for many of our listeners. I don't know. You might enjoy brief. <laughs> um, okay. So let's just go Jump for it. Um, so this month for our Tequila Mockingbird Book Club, Jessica and I both read Howard's End by E.M. Forster. Now, Jessica has read this multiple times. This was my yes. first time reading it or any Forster. Um, so I am a Forrester fan. I'm... You know what? Based off of this particular book, I'm not sure I would pick up any more by him. Um, but I think you should. Well, yeah, there's I, there's probably a lot of things I should do, <laughs> but I don't do them. Um, it's just I, it was not my um, my particular cup of tea. I can see how people would enjoy it. It just wasn't my jam. Yes, and I um, as as everyone who listens to this probably knows, I'm a big fan of books that happen um, in the late, oh, anywhere from 1700s to 1900s uh, British literature. Yeah, Um, I don't mind books that happen in that time period. I just didn't care for this one. (laughs) But but he falls sort of into my sweet spot at the end of... um, it's sort of an end of the Victorian era, looking forward, um, headed into World War One, And then, of course, I enjoy literature from between the wars quite a lot as well. Yes. So, um, but um, Howard's End is, um, it, you know, it came to my attention for the first time when I was in college and it had been made in, well, A Room with a View had been made into a film first by Merchant Ivory and... It was the first film I ever saw that was just blew my socks off. Like, I just loved it so much. It was. No, wait, wait, wait. You saw Star Wars, right? I did. (laughs) I did see Star Wars. And it also blew my socks off. But I was, when I saw Star Wars, I was um, younger. Uh And I 
am, I, I loved not, it. Not fully able to appreciate the wonder that is a Wookiee. <laughs> well, I certainly appreciated it, but <laughs> but A Room with a View and then Howard's End were, was a different style of film than you saw, I think, in the United States during that period of time. Fair, fair enough. And so, <laughs> um, and being... Uh, in college and young and romantic mm-hmm. and all of those things, um, it really appealed to me with the lovely Helena Bonham Carter. Oh, in the, the notorious HBC. <laughs> in both films. Mm-hmm. Um, so I um, started reading Forrester then, and I tended to at that point in my life when I started with an author I liked. I was so excited that I had found something that I really enjoyed reading that I would just go through their whole catalog and so with Forrester, I, I did something similar. And um, Howard's End was the second of his books I read. And um, I really, really enjoyed it at the time and have read it, you know, once a decade probably since then. <laughs> and like you do. Like you do. <laughs> you got to visit your friends. And so, so Howard's End is um, primarily concerned with the Schlegel sisters well, the Schlegels, the Wilcoxes, and the Basts. Yeah, but I would say that Margaret and Helen are are the main characters. They do have a brother who figures in Tibby. At, yeah. at some times. He's, Tibby's he's kind a, of a pivotal... He, he, he comes in at certain moments when he's... As a... a as a narrative device when Forrester needed to get from no. point A to point B. No, I, I think Tibby in the book almost represents Forrester. I mean... I, I can see that, but he, yeah. he doesn't have a a huge part in the book. He's not he's not on right. page a yeah. lot. He's, um, he's not one of the main characters. But I think it's... For me, it's, it's a, a book that tries to piece out the, the tension between the commercial world... And the artistic world of ideas and nature, um, and the conflict that they come into at this point in Britain. Yeah, and I was in the minority of people in the book club. And when I say the minority, I think I was the only person who was like, you know, Henry's not a bad guy. Yeah, I think you may have been the only person. <laughs> well, and and like. The people that really hated Charles. Well, they're he's, no. He's not a bad guy. Like they're not. They're not villains. I mean, so the the characters in the books that are portrayed in a less than flattering light sometimes are not real villains in the way we see villains today. They're just standing in for, you know, kind of capitalism at this point, and versus the intellectual natural life and so i i don't think they're bad people um and especially henry i mean i don't think he's a terrible person i just think he stands in contrast to this yeah no i will i will say that he does yeah he is a foil but i but it seems like several of the people in our book club had a very strong reaction (laughs) so uh, henry is decidedly not a feminist um, in the book. He takes a very he's, traditional view of the world. He's also an older man in, you know, Victorian, the end of Victorian right. England. I mean, so he's he's pretty much what every man is of a certain class. He is. He is. And then, uh, so the, the, the 
the storyline of the book is the Schlegel sisters are, um, uh, Margaret is in her late 20s and um, her younger sister is in her early 20s. She's about seven years younger. And the two of them have a small fortune of their own and their parents have died and their younger brother, Tibby, lives with them. Margaret has really ended up raising the family. And um, they come into contact through their travels with a family, the Wilcoxes, which is a larger family with two boys, a daughter, Evie, and um, Mr. and Mrs. Wilcox. And we meet them as Helen. Helen has impetuously gotten engaged to Paul, the one brother, and has also called off said engagement, you know, basically five minutes later, and um, there's a kind of a comedy of errors mm-hmm. with the um, with their aunt who doesn't realize the engagement has been called off, and and so there's there's a bit of a scene. There's a bit of a scene, and so things did not get off on the right foot um, with the Wilcoxes and the Schlegels, and the chances of them actually becoming well acquainted in the future seem to be nil. But then the Wilcoxes end up taking an apartment across in the sort of nouveau new flats from the Schlegels in London. And so their lives kind of intertwine in a way that they probably wouldn't have otherwise. otherwise. Um, And then there's... Well, so then the other character that comes in, which is sort of important, um, is a Mr. Bast, who is a clerk. And he is come from the country, he's educated, but not well-educated, and he's trying to educate himself because he yearns for an artistic life. He wants to be an intellectual. He wants to be the guy that goes out and walks in the woods and and gains great insight from his walking in the woods. And following the pole star. Mm -hmm. Um, But unfortunately, he's made some choices which are going to limit him in his pursuits. He is engaged and living with... No, he's married. Well, he marries her, but um, to Jackie, who um, is a woman who's older than him and um, not inclined towards intellectualism at all. Um, Mm -hmm. No. And, And so... The Basts end up intertwined in this whole story because Helen accidentally picks up his umbrella and takes it from a concert. And he follows her home because to him, who's a clerk and has no money, an umbrella is an important investment and part of his life. To her, it means nothing. And um, so they take an interest in him kind of like you would a stray puppy and it doesn't turn out to be a great thing really if you've ever seen the movie my man godfrey um where the it starts out with the bet to bring the bum to the party and the first the first people who can do that it's sort of that same sort of feeling that same sort of interest but it's not got the charm of william powell (laughs) well (laughs) but it's um it's almost for them a social experiment and and the Helen and Margaret both attend these intellectual dinners where they discuss the social issues of the time. And and I think to some degree they look at him as sort of a social experiment. Um, and, and anyway, it goes from there. Um, the Wilcoxes and the Schlegels become completely entwined through Howard's End, the house, um, and there's more to that, but... 
you should you should read it yourself and and draw your own conclusion. It is definitely worth reading. You know who my favorite character was? Who? Paul. Paul was your favorite because he's not in the book at all. Yep, hundred <laughs> percent. He was in Nigeria the whole time. Yep. Yep. Uh, Aunt Julie is one of my favorites. I, I love of the her. ones that were actually in the book, Aunt Julie was my oh, favorite. Melissa. But but Paul. Okay. You know Paul, that guy. He knew what was up. Okay. <laughs> Well, this is one of the rare instances where Melissa and I are going to have to agree to disagree on the, the merits of a book. Yeah. But, um, but Howard's End, if, if you are in for that sort of thing, is definitely good. Um, a Room with a View, it's a little, it's, yes, um, it's not the same as A Room with a View. Um, I thoroughly enjoyed Maurice and then uh, his book about India, The Name is Escaping a, a Passage, passage to, to India. India. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, I really liked um, if you want to delve into colonialism a bit, and um, who doesn't want to delve into colonialism a bit? And then his book about his early life at Cambridge, um, which I am blanking on, um, is also wonderful and has one of my favorite philosophical discussions about whether the cow is in the field because we see him, or whether he's just there because he's there. <laughs> Melissa's rolling her I'm eyes at sure me. I'm not sure I can roll my eyes hard enough. <laughs> so anyway, I'm going to Merkel. <laughs> if you if you go in for this sort of thing, which I obviously do, then this is probably a book you will enjoy. If you don't, then you know, watch the movie if you like, or don't. You know, it's it's a it's a very good movie. It is. It's well done. It stays true to the book. Well, <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. So what have you been reading, Melissa? Um, okay. So when our Simon & Schuster rep, Melissa, was on, um, one of the books she talked about was uh, called Dark Horses by Susan Mihalik. And if you listen to that episode, this is the one that she was like, people are either going to really like this or they're going to hate this. There is mm -hmm. no in-between. Um, so I was like, hmm, I'm intrigued. Um <laughs> So I actually listened to it as an audiobook um, from Libro, Libro FM, um, and I will say the narrator was excellent. It was it was a well done audiobook, um, but I can see why she would say people are either going to like it or they're going to hate it. Um, so the story is set against um, a backdrop of competitive horseback riding. Um, the main character, Rowan, is a 15-year-old girl. Um, sh her father was an Olympic equestrian. Mm -hmm. His father was an Olympic equestrian. Um, they own this giant multi-million dollar farm called Rosemont in Virginia where they breed and uh, thoroughbreds and, mm -hmm. you know, this is, this is what they do. Um, and so she has been training to be an Olympic equestrian. That's, like, her goal. Um, She's also, he is her trainer, coach, manager. What could go wrong? Father, sexual abuser. Yeah. Um, so from a very young age, she has been abused by her father. Um, and her mother um, didn't want to have a child, um, mm -hmm. was a model and ended up getting pregnant and the father insisted she keep the baby, so she did, but she has basically been miserable ever since having this child and has not made it a secret that she never wanted the kid um, and has become an alcoholic and is just verbally abusive to the child. Um, so she does she participate in any other way in the child's life, or is she mostly just... 
she's mostly just there to say terrible things to her and um, basically use her as a pawn against her dad uh, on the occasion when she's not passed out on the couch. Wow. Um, So she really has just a a terrible Mm -hmm. life. Um, And... Other than her horse, other she really she really does love riding. Like mm-hmm. that is something she really enjoys, and she has um, three horses. One of which is Jasper, and Jasper is like the horse that she bonded with the minute she started riding him. Mm-hmm. Like they are very close. Um, in the course of this, she meets a boy at school and starts dating him secretly because her father says she's not not old enough to date, um, and also is very territorial and mm-hmm. protective and weird weird um so i had read previously my dark vanessa which is um a similar story in mm-hmm. that it's a 15 year old girl but she enters into a relationship with an older teacher so it's not a familial abuse situation, but there was still like psychological grooming. This is a very, this is a very different story just from the control aspect and really her not having Mm -hmm. any way out of this situation. Um, so for me, I did not, I did not really like it from Mm -hmm. that perspective. Um, I felt like there was no, way for it to end in a satisfactory way that was going to make me so it was just unrelenting yeah it was basically unrelenting so yeah well yes yeah um well i something completely different yeah. that i i read this time um well that i've been reading it's i'm reading this with another book group um and i'm also watching the pbs hemingway special um with ken burns and so this place, I've been, um, I'm reading A Movable Feast, again, for like the umpteenth time. This was a book that I picked up my senior year in high school and um, immediately fell in love with the idea of being an artist, being in Paris, um, Ernest Hemingway, all of that. And so I, um, this is a book I've reread over time, and it it's just sort of a... Um, it, it talks about a mem- it's a memoir by Hemingway, although um, about his years as a struggling expat journalist and writer in Paris during the 1920s. And um, the book details his first marriage with Hadley and the birth of their child. And um, then um, and he talks about all of the people who were in Paris at the time. So Joyce and Stein and. Scott Fitzgerald, and it's like a a who's who of literary luminaries in the 1920s in Paris, and um, it's just, it's, I really enjoy it. I know that it is not 100% accurate as far as what really happened, like he wasn't really starving during that time. And well, but uh, honestly, mean, nobody's memoir is 100% accurate. It's mm-hmm. all told through a lens of remembering, and, and people so, remember things very differently. <laughs> it's true. And these were sort of his coming-of-age glory days where he was um, the hot new author. I mean, he achieved so much fame before the age of 30 that um, it's... 
I think it would be a, a lot for anyone. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, it's interesting reading it while watching the Ken Burns because he talks about Hemingway creating the myth of Hemingway. And then once the myth of Hemingway is created, then he has to live the myth. And mm-hmm. so um, it's, it's a very short little book. It's... Um, well, I say short. It's not. It's a, a little over two hundred pages. It's very accessible. If this is a time period, if you're a fan of the Lost Generation and you want to read um, a little bit of a from Hemingway's point of view, tell all about that time in Paris. Um, it's worth picking up. Um, it is. It does make you want to buy a plane ticket when COVID is over and <laughs> and head out and sit in your cafe and smell the bread baking and be a little bit hungry and start penciling out your first novel, maybe. Well, um, you're going to have, like, all Hemingway all the time because uh, our To Kill a Mockingbird book club is also for next month reading The Sun Also Rises. So. I know. I'm very excited. I, um, I Anyway, I spent some time in Spain a few years ago and walked the Navarra Trail, which a lot of this takes place in that era. So, um, so yes, I'm okay with being immersed in Hemingway for a yeah. little while. I'm I'm actually kind of curious to read this on also rises again because um, I had gone through um, at one point and read every Hemingway book mm-hmm. just because I didn't get it and I got done and I didn't get it um, and then we reread The Old Man in the Sea which yes um, which I read in. Um, Ninth grade, I think. Which, why, why, why do you assign a ninth grader that book? I don't know. But reading it again, um, just like last year, I, I was like, oh, okay, I get this now. Mm-hmm. So that uh, I'm curious to, to try it again from a, a few I, years um, on. <laughs> I would say my favorite Hemingway is A Farewell to Arms. Mm-hmm. That is my absolute favorite. I appreciate The Sun Also Rises. Um, I love a movable feast, but a farewell to arms to me is his masterpiece. No, well, I know not everybody agrees with that. But <laughs> well, that, that, like, you know, that's a bold statement. It's, you know? well, <laughs> to me, I feel it's not a. Um, so I'm, I'm saying it from an emotional point of view. It's the book of his that I connect the most with. Yeah, I can. I would imagine that's going to be somewhere down the line in the Tequila Mockingbird. I think um, so. Yeah, I think so. Uh, the thing I love about the Tequila Mockingbird book group that we have is that we read classics, and um, and it is really great to go back and revisit or read for the first time things that you were supposed to have read. And I find from my mature age now, <laughs> I appreciate most of them much more than I did. And some of them that I thought I loved, I found I find now... Not as much. Not as much. So. Yeah. Well, and uh, Forster is an author that I was never assigned anything. Like, I mean, I'm familiar with the through mm-hmm. you know many years of book selling. Yes. Um, but yeah, never, never was anything that was mm-hmm. on any school lists or. I, anything I read like him that. in college for the first time. I didn't read him in high school. Well, and I, in college, I didn't mm-hmm. have to read him either. So, yes. Well, yeah. um, so we're here with Diane, who is our Penguin rep from the Penguin Random House Group, and she's going to talk to us about some upcoming books, some books that are already out, and then we're going to discuss the book we all read together, The Paper Palace. Hey, Diane. Hi. 
Hi, uh, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be in Savannah, if only uh, figuratively, I guess, not literally today. Yeah. Uh, I'm over at my little house in the Panhandle in Panama City Beach, and we've had an awful rainy day, so hopefully it's nicer there. But uh, it's nice to nice day to stay out of the rain and talk about books. Very good. Yes, it's, it's rainy here today, too, and, and you're live from my dining room, um, which doesn't get used anymore except for podcasting because, you know, COVID. So. All righty, cool. Well, I have a number of books to uh, chat about. So um, there's, uh, I think, four titles are fiction and I think two are nonfiction. So a uh, nice combination, I hope, of uh, things that we originally published last year and a couple of things that are brand, brand new. So um, let me start with uh, My Year Abroad by Chang Wei Li. And um, he's uh, sort of gone outside his comfort zone here, I think. His previous novels have all been uh, tied in with um, his family history, uh, his, his growing up, his raising, his uh, immigrant uh, family life from the, the Korea, and uh, his travels not only in this country but around the world. But his newest book um, is uh, told in the voice of a young man. His name is Tiller Bardman. He's a young guy from New Jersey, and uh, he's kind of filling his his days working at a golf course and he's a young man he's 17 or 18 years old as the book opens and he ends up being a caddy for this kind of high high volume kind of guy who i call him uh, a gentleman from asia his name is pong lu and he's a businessman he runs fast and loose loose with the truth with with everything and but chiller gets wrapped up into his uh, world if you will and even to the extent that uh, Tiller is brought along uh, to Asia and at various different uh, venues that they visit, uh, he gets involved with several different women, uh, different relationships. And um, at the same time, there's a parallel story of a, uh, an American woman that Tiller meets at the airport. And part of that story is told in retrospect. So it jumps back and forth from Tiller's current trip uh, throughout Asia and with the parallel story of a woman that he falls in love with, even though she is eight or nine years older than he is. And also she has an eight-year-old child. Wow. Um, so it's, it's a dual novel. Uh, it's, it's just superbly written, I think. Uh, you get into his, his world quite easily. And um, so that's... Um, uh, my year abroad. It sounds um, it's fairly literary as uh, fiction. It, it it is, yeah. Uh, there's a whole whole um, kind of uh, I wouldn't call it a new world, but it's definitely uh, he creates an alternate universe, if you will, for Tiller. Mm-hmm. Um, it's somewhat um, phantasmagorical, perhaps, or magical realism involved with it as well. But in the end, it's, it's certainly all grounded, and Tiller makes his way back to America uh, with Val, who is the older woman that he meets, and uh, it kind of proceeds from there. But definitely more on the literary side, uh, not the lightest summer reading, if you will. <laughs> that one has been selling really, really well for us. Uh, Excellent. Uh, yeah, we've been doing really well with it. So. Yeah. Well, he's also an, an, uh working on, I think, two different novels that he references, um, uh, both set in different 
locations around the world. So one is is quite frankly family based or his heritage based. So, and the other one I don't know a whole lot more about yet, but I think we're probably a year or two away from either one of those making it into print. Okay, well, okay. he's been busy. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Alrighty, and then um, my next book which I actually do have a copy of here, is uh, Anne Lamott's uh, uh, just beautiful new nonfiction, uh, you know, Dusk, uh, Night, Dawn, uh, inspirational. Uh, I really love her. I love her writing. I love her nonfiction, frankly, better than her fiction, but that's just me. But uh, it's inspirational, definitely told from her kind of faith-based uh, uh, a sense of you know what's right, what's wrong, the ethics of life, if you will, uh, but without being too heavy about it. Um, she uh, kind of refers to what she's writing here as the third half of her life, if you will. Uh, so uh, after, after the, the, the third act, I guess, if you will, but not the third half. Uh, but uh, uh, she is 65 at this point, and she writes from that viewpoint. And she's writing about, of course, the year of turmoil that we've had. And also from the viewpoint of the change in her life in that she got married about a year or so ago or two years oh, ago. So she's, yeah, yeah. And she's writing from that. And it's quite funny and amusing how she writes about the change or the adjustment to her lifestyle. Uh, what with her husband uh, and, and perhaps not every minute of every day is entirely her, her own anymore. Uh, so she finds that as many of us do, you know, you're sharing everything, including the minutes of the day. So it, it's, uh, you know, but she, she writes that in a very, in a very amusing way. But uh, I'll just read one quote she has about the book. She says, it's one sentence, where on earth do we start to get our world and joy and hope in our faith in life itself back? And again, from the point of view of what we've all had to go through uh, over the last number of years from politics Mm-hmm. to COVID, uh, to all, you know, from the violence in this country and elsewhere around the world, all these kinds of uh, issues that we're dealing with. So uh, she writes uh, this book, as with her others, from an internal, internalized point of view. But she mixes in her real-life stories of where she is and everything from uh, the responsibility of, of making dinner <laughs> for two yes. people now, yeah. <laughs> on up to, to making uh, life together in, in the highest respect uh, with her new husband. Nice. So yeah. Just beautiful writing. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, I started reading her years ago with one of my first book clubs I ever started. Um, and yeah, I love the way she writes about, I, I, you know, um, I forget what her prayer was, but it was sort of help, help, help. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And I thought, yeah, that, that pretty much sums it up most of the time. Do you think that this would be equally enjoyed by a, like a non-religious reader? Can oh, I, I, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I'm glad you mentioned that. Yeah, no, it definitely. Um, you know, as I say, it is faith-based, but just, you know, who she is. I mean, she's a, she's a woman of a certain age. She's a grandmother. Um, she talks about her drug addiction. So she's a recovering drug addict. Wow. Uh, she's, yeah. She's a Sunday school teacher. Um, you know, she's uh, a very successful author, both in fiction and nonfiction. Uh, she's done everything. Uh, she's, um, you know, kind of a woman of the world, if you will, but definitely a faith, faith-based. But, 
you know, I think it's perfectly readable and uh, enjoyable and would be meaningful to uh, anyone of, of whether you're heavily religious or faith-based or spiritual, however you want to describe it or not. Okay. So, yes. Yeah. Uh, she, um, yeah, she definitely came from a dark place initially. I mean, she was n- not leading a happy or successful life. Um, and then, yeah, she turned her life around really with help of others and, um, and then wrote about it beautifully. Nice. Yeah. Anyway. All Well, my next one's a little bit of a change. Uh, this is a novel. It's called 2034. Mm-hmm. And uh, the authors, it's dual authors. Uh, one is a novelist. His name is Elliot Ackerman, and he's written liter- literary novels, uh, some of which are from his um, military uh, experience. He's been embedded in different um, military conflicts around the world. So he writes from that point of view, but uh, he's he's, um, a a worldview person, definitely, if that makes sense. And you can still be writing from the embedded military point of view. Then the other author uh, author is Admiral James Stravitas, and he has written uh, several bestsellers that we've published. Um, He was uh, the very highest uh, uh, ranks in the Navy. He retired, I believe, five years ago. Um, just as a, what we wish would have happened, perhaps. But if Hillary Clinton had won the presidency, uh, Admiral Stravitas would have definitely been high amongst her uh, advisors in the White House for world and, and military um, um, uh, issues and, and advice of the day. But what they've done here is written a novel of the year 2034, and uh, it's involves a conflict between America and Japan and China against the background of where both countries are uh, in 2034. Uh, it opens with a, on, on a, an American warship, um, not a big, huge uh, aircraft carrier, but a smaller destroyer or cruiser type of vessel captained by a female first officer or captain. And and it opens quite dramatically uh, with uh, a Japanese, or I keep saying that, Chinese vessel that is behaving in a uh, threatening way. And uh, I'm not giving away too much. I hope I don't think I am. But early in the book, it's revealed that the Chinese have this new weapon that they can kind of aim across open sea or an open area and completely disable uh, uh, their opponents' computer systems, their electronic systems, almost at the press of a button. And it's kind of a metaphor for how the, the authors think their world, not the worldview, but the position in the world of China and America uh, have the potential to flip-flop over the next 14 years or so. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the Chinese of 2034 in this book are more advanced in certain ways technologically and also as world leaders. Mm-hmm. And um, the, the viewpoint of the authors is that we have not been beaten, we being America, but we have been not paying attention to the things that we should have. We've, we've kind of let other things bog us down, other uh, petty conflicts uh, within domestic or what have you. Uh, our political situation has, has not enabled us to keep up with, for better or worse, is the more monolithic uh, Chinese system. Mm-hmm. And that our, um, our allies perhaps aren't 
you know, they're still with us, but they they have a realistic uh, worldview as well in that they have to look to who's the most powerful going forward. And at least in the world of 2034, that might be the Chinese. So that's the beginning of it. It devolves into a big, huge international uh, thriller, if you will. Um, but it's, uh, have you, have you been uh, selling it or have yes, you had it? Yes, yes. Uh, you think? Okay. Yeah. Um, so, so you would say speculative, not dystopian kind of future? Uh, it's speculative with the potential for dystopian. Okay. 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 Um, yeah. yeah, it but, sounds, um, but not... yeah, <laughs> but it, it, it doesn't end with, uh, the apocalypse, if you will. Okay. <laughs> so I hope I don't say too much about it, yeah. but yeah. Okay. So, uh, it, it's, it's more of a, of a novel that's, I think they've positioned to be kind of a warning sign or a red flag, if you will, mm-hmm. that we as the leading country in the world, have to keep our our uh, impetus going and and our desire and our will to be the best and and you know act the best too not just be the most um, you know wealthy country in the world but to behave the most responsibility responsibly and be the leader of the world. Mm-hmm. Right, which, okay, interesting. I um I don't know if I want to look into that right now or not. <laughs> Okay. It's it's it reads very very quickly though. Uh so you you can you can uh, attack the book if you will and uh, and uh read through it quite quickly. So pulling a bandaid off. Just do it quickly. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Alrighty. Uh the next uh book I want to talk about actually is two books. Uh these are both paperback originals. We published the Salt Path um about a year and a half ago. Yeah, two years perhaps. Absolutely. Yeah, and then the new book from the uh, Rainer Wynn uh, is called The Wild Silence, mm-hmm. and also in paperback. Um, just a little background on Rainer Wynn and her husband. His nickname is Moth, M O T H, <laughs> and, <laughs> and they they. Um, have made some bad decisions uh, at the start of the salt pass. Uh, they made a bad investment with what turned out to be a friend who was not really a friend, but who uh, uh, led them into um, basically throwing money, throwing away their fortune, if you will, uh, uh, completely. So they were left at a point two or three years ago where they were penniless. In addition to that, the husband, uh, Moth, uh, has this very uh, rare neuropathic uh, disease that's uh, untreatable really and is he will not recover from uh so but he he's actually still alive and he, he's doing as well as could be expected e- even now and and that's a little bit of the subject of the wild silence as well but it's as much as anything it's Rainer Wynn and her husband's world uh, view of nature is so so important to them uh, they were running a uh, a farm uh, where they made the bad investment, and the farm was taken away from them. Uh, mortgages were for, foreclosed, that kind of thing. And uh, they lost their case in court. So one day they had the farm in a, in a way of making a living, and uh, although the husband had medical treatment coming up, there was a way to, to deal with that. But they walked out of court losing all of that. So what they did in the fall pass uh, is to get into nature. She had to, Rainer had to get back to 
what reinvents re, uh, her, if you will, is nature. So uh, do you guys know what the salt path is in the, in the Great Britain? Um, it, I, it, a little bit, yes. All right. Yeah. It, it, it's, a, it's a path that goes around southwest uh, England. Mm-hmm. Uh, from the, the Bristol Channel, which is kind of the, the northern part of the little toe of England. Mm-hmm. And then the salt path goes from that to the west and then down along the British Channel coast to uh, almost to Portsmouth. And it's 630 miles if you walk it. Right. Uh, it's, it's, it's like going from Bristol Channel to the English, to the English Channel the long way around. If you rode your bicycle, it would be 60 miles. But if you walk around the long way, it's a 630. So they did this almost penniless. Uh, they camped out. Um, it's sort of an odd thing that moth's health improved as the further along they went. So they did that in, in about a year and a half. And so there they are. Uh, at this point, uh, Rainer is dealing with the declining health of her 90-year-old mother. So that's where the wild silence opens. So she's visiting her mother. Uh, again, the mother has lived a good long life, and you know the in- inevitable was on the, on the horizon. So uh, the um, bit of the book is a recap of what happened in the salt pass. But it's as much as anything of the reordering of their lives. And it does have a, a, a happy ending. It's not a major surprise. And it's you know, halfway through the, the wild silence. A patron, if you will, sets them up on this uh, farm um, in the interior part of that toe of England that, that mm-hmm. kind of sticks out there. So, uh, and, and they are charged with reinventing or revitalizing that farm, which is it works out well for both of them, and she's uh, obviously started writing again with a wild silence. Uh, the Salt Pass was a short listed for the um, Costa Prize, which is one of the, the top literary prizes in the UK. So uh, they're both very engaging books. Um, buy them both, read them both. They have excellent covers. Yes. <laughs> Aren't they neat? And they, mm-hmm. sometimes uh, we don't do what the, the Brits do. Uh, uh, even though this is Penguin uh, UK. So mm-hmm. these are the exact same covers they were published under in the UK. And I think yeah, it's a great you, idea. Yeah, yeah those just are great. Sort of woodcut kind of uh, artwork. Mm-hmm. Just beautiful. Yeah, we always so, debate um, about British versus American covers. We both prefer <laughs> the British covers all the time. And I don't understand the American covers. For but. the most part, I do too. I'm with you, I think. Uh, but anyway, I hope you do read uh, Rainer Wynn. Uh, just a word of warning, she can be prickly. Um, so can I. <laughs> I. I don't know if I would want to spend years with her, but uh, she's her own woman, I guess, and, and uh, wants her own way. And uh, she, she's helping her husband to the best of her ability at this point. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe we could spend a week with her. Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right, and then on to um, the uh, book we published in hardcover last year, The Authenticity Project. Mm-hmm. had a very different cover on it, if you might remember. Yes. It had kind yes. of a bluish green mm-hmm. with a green notebook. Yeah. Uh, but this is the paperback edition. It's been out for a little bit now. Uh, so uh, this is a – I'm really uh, doing a lot of British stuff today. So this is a, a novel of – I guess you would put it in the category of Eleanor Oliphant. Uh, um, that that type of British writing, uh, it's it's 
cozy in a way, but it has a viewpoint too in that the authenticity project of the novel is a little green notebook that an older gentleman uh, leaves in the local coffee house. And he writes of his own, where he is in life, I guess. So the authenticity is to write in a honest manner, which he does. So he talks about his uh, loneliness. He's 70. His wife has passed away dealing with all those issues. So uh, he writes in the notebook some pages of his own authenticity and then leaves it with the uh, the, the uh, suggestion that as people come through and discover this notebook, that they write their own authentic story within the book. So that's the conceit of the novel. So they have any number of people uh, contribute to it. <clears throat> some stories are happy, some are not. Some of the folks meet up, some don't. Uh, some of them meet up and are happy. Some of them meet each other and boy, oil and water. <laughs> yeah. But, but it's, it's, it's an affirmative book for, and it's a hopeful book for sure. And the authenticity part of it, uh, is, is really the urge to be honest with yourself. Even if you don't share it, just be honest, be aware of where you are and what's going on. There is kind of a surprise twist towards the end of it, which I won't talk about. Mm-hmm. But that'll be a little teaser for your listeners here to uh, pick up the Authenticity Project. Um, one of our booksellers, right. Manuela, read that recently and loved it. Like she, she's a yeah. big fan. Well, <laughs> and then also somebody picked it up in the store and bookstagrammed the cover. They said, "Oh, I was in E Shavers and I saw this beautiful book and had to buy it." Just because <laughs> yeah, yes. Isn't it lovely? I mean, you could, the paperback yeah. cover is is, is very really good. good. Much better than the hard, uh, hardcover edition. Yeah. One of my, just as a quick and aside, uh, one of my problems with art directors that, although maybe not so much anymore because um, publishers' offices are still empty, but all the art directors have lunch at the same place and talk to each other. So you see so much copycatting. Oh. And all of a sudden you'll see yeah. four books in a season come out with almost the same cover. Well, they've yeah. all been to lunch or had drinks together, I think. Yeah. <laughs> And well, there you are. About this phenomenon, because like yeah. a year ago, everything had the rope. Yeah, they had like rope tied around the. Yeah, and then before that, everything was that weird blue. Mm-hmm. And then yeah, it's um, it's funny because uh, lots of times when we're facing them out, they'll end up faced out right near each other, and like. Hmm. Oh. <laughs> and it's hard for booksellers because well. For me, I have a very visual memory, and so I know where things are in the shelf and the color and the position, and I can just pull it out. And when they do the covers that all look alike, I'm like, which one is that? <laughs> it's, it's funny that you should say that. I, I started in the book industry when I was a few years younger, and this was in the late 80s. And uh, I was just I started as a clerk at a local bookstore as a staffer, and it was a big store, Um and it was a whole different day and age of bookselling in those days. So, you know, it was the, the, the biggest, it was the bookseller in Morris County, New Jersey, which is, you know, a, a populous, affluent county west of the city. But I, they had rows upon rows of, of racks, if you will. So it was not pretty displays or anything like that. But after I'd worked there like six months or eight months, I, if somebody asked me for a book, I could tell whoever's asking me, oh, it's aisle six. It's the third row from the bottom. It's next to a book that has a blue cover and an orange cover. Yep. Yeah. Bang. That is, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, it's just how it sinks into your head, you know. Yeah, so that, that's absolutely. wonderful you say that. Yeah. <laughs> I know. So, yes, they need to differentiate. And um, and the photo shopping, that's, that's a – Yes. We, we are tired of looking at the backs of women. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, well, yes, uh, I, let's digress on that a little bit, especially the World War II uh, yeah. women, well, women's angst World novel. Book. Yeah. You have, the, you have the airplanes, you have the woman's yeah. back, pass with a child yeah. uh, mm-hmm. on a bridge. A red coat. Yeah. Yes. A red coat, yeah. yeah. We just had a sales conference uh, about three weeks ago, and they were discussing covers and things like that. And one of the reps brought it up and but I guess the general thought was they are selling still as yeah. long as they're selling and being read even more importantly, yeah. we're going to keep doing it. And if, yeah. if, if your, your, your kind readers decide they don't like that cover anymore or it doesn't speak to them, then we'll stop. Well, what if, what if booksellers in general revolt and we just say, <laughs> I'm not buying any books this season that are the back of a woman. Yeah, but if people want to order them, we'll order them. But I mean, yeah, but it's it's the kind of thing that when you look at the book, you know exactly what you're getting. Mm -hmm. You know it's going to be World War II fiction and... You know, although sometimes it's false advertising because, like, the, the, the Lilac Girls that has a sort of feel good cover of these women walking together, and it's a book about Ravensbrook. It's a very dark book. Dark, yes, yes. Yeah. But it looks like a feel good World War II book. <laughs> well, not that I didn't mean to imply they're all feel good, but you know, yeah. they're they're yeah. an issue either of a missing husband or missing wife or missing child yeah. or people who have to immigrate to avoid conflict, that kind of thing. Yeah. But uh, yeah. So. But um, well, maybe not feel good, but it, it looked more like a friendship book, and it was okay. It was it wasn't that. <laughs> <laughs> All righty, uh, my next one is from old friend Sumak Kid. Uh, oh, this is okay. a paperback edition of the Book of Longings, and uh, the hardcover was out just about a year ago, I think, in February of. 20, I think, before all this nonsense started. Uh, But anyway, the paperback's been out a a few months now, or a few weeks. Um, One thing that uh, Sue does with her books, they're very well researched. You know her from The Secret Life of Bees, The Mermaid Chair, and then uh, more recently, The Invention of Wings. And in this case, she's gone back to the time of Jesus. And although there is no proof or, or you know, real history of the of the woman who might have been uh, the wife of Jesus. That's what she comes up with in her imagining, reimagining, or imagining the life of a young man, Jesus. Mm-hmm. Typically, all the young men uh, were married then. Uh, arranged marriages were that was what was done. Or uh, typically, uh, the, the father would arrange something with another family, perhaps for economic reasons or who knows, political reasons, almost anything. But uh, Sue is, is uh, she said, what if? <clears throat> so she has, um, uh, has uh, I won't say invented, but she's uh, constructed uh, a woman. Her name is Ava. She's uh, a young girl, as the book opens. She's 14 or 15 years old, just coming of age at 15. And uh, she's her, her father has arranged a marriage with her with an older, wealthy gentleman in, in, in Jerusalem. And uh, she doesn't want this. She's very well educated. Uh, she speaks and reads in different languages, which uh, she has a, uh, a well-connected family that she comes from. But women's kind of growth, if you will, ends at 15. They go into marriage and onward from there. So she describes uh, the the marriage of uh, Eva and Jesus. This was before Jesus was who he, he became. 
before uh, you know the miracles, before the 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 preaching, before those kinds of that part of his life started, I so, guess. So the lost years that we don't know. The about. lost years, yes. <laughs> but <laughs> well, just, I mean, unless you've read Lamb by Christopher Moore, and then well, you know exactly what happened. <laughs> yep. <laughs> there is that. <laughs> And then there's the movie too that they talk about. Um, oh gosh, very irreverent movie with. Um, yes. Um, um, oh gosh, he blesses the golf clubs. It's got. It's the guy yeah. from. Um, the. Um, oh, Martin Scorsese. Was Martin? Mar- oh, you're not no. talking about Scorsese. So, yes. So la- you're not talking about the last. Temptation of Christ. No. Well, no, I saw that as well. But yes. Uh, oh, okay. Right. Or, there's one called Dogma, where Adam oh, okay, and yeah. the Holy Spirit, and he um, oh. he talked about yeah those sort of in between years where Jesus was okay hanging out with Rufus. <laughs> well, the writing is wonderful. Uh, uh, Sue uh, certainly uh, takes you into her imagined uh, uh, life or time of Jesus, and you feel you were right there living uh, in, in Jerusalem in, in those years. Um, okay, uh, my next one is uh, Superhost. Uh, this was uh, finally, <laughs> finally, finally published uh, February, I think it was. It was originally supposed to uh, be published last summer. But for a number of reasons, most like mostly uh, the COVID, we decided to move it back into hopefully a time now where it's, it's more advantageous for the book. It's a new author, although you might recognize her last name, Russo. She is one of Richard Russo's daughters. So uh, she lives in the UK, uh, but you know, still comes back to America. So his other daughter uh, is a bookstore owner in, I think, Portland, Maine, I think. Or Cape Elizabeth up, up either in Portland or near Portland. So, and then of course, Richard Russo has a great pedigree and we all love his books. And yeah. reading Superhost, I was reminded, I think, of, of Russo's style of writing, kind of a, a comfort, uh, maybe an, an irascible, uh, lead character. And that's what we have for sure in Superhost. Uh, it's a story of, a, of an artist. His name is Bennett Driscoll, and he made his fortune and, and uh, his reputation of painting nudes uh, when he was a younger man. And they're hugely popular, and he made a piles of money. And he now lives in this big, huge, fancy house that he can no longer afford. His artwork is no longer desired or or um, really saleable. Yeah. He's kind of fallen by the wayside. So it's that's awesome. where the – go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. That's right. I was going to say that's where the metaphor of the superhost comes along, so like an Airbnb kind of thing, whereas he rents out his house in an Airbnb kind of manner and then lives in a little um, kind of a utility shed, if you will, his studio in the back in the backyard. So he has this big fancy house that he gets Americans and British people of wealth to come stay in, and it's a story of his relationship of four different women who come into the house and he has different levels of relationship with each of them. And also there's a side story to, not a side story. It's an important part of his relationship with his uh, adult daughter mm-hmm. and that needs repairing. And also his, uh, his ex-wife who lives now in America. So a lot going on, uh, but it's, it's heartwarming uh, in a way. I think he comes to terms to where he is in life, changes a few things uh, a lot of his troubles are from his own poor decisions, perhaps <laughs> yes. as a younger man. Though yes. that's what men—that's what men do, right? Uh, but 
but he's getting it together towards the end. And I just love the book. Uh, uh, yeah, I loved it. We heard about it for the first time at Winter uh, Institute back when we, the last Winter Institute we actually went yeah, to, yeah. Um, where we attended in person. And um, and I had a arc of it and read it and I loved it and was so excited about it coming out and then was sad when it was um when it was delayed, but it is currently in my staff picks right now. Yes. It's, Yay. Thank <laughs> you. I think it deserves some recognition. And um, yeah, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. And I loved his story and I loved the descriptions of the art world. And because I have a daughter, I have a child in art school and um, the way he talks about the boys that his daughter knows and, and their whole attitude is, is just spot on. Very <laughs> <laughs> funny. <laughs> Well, we're we're happy to have her, and I think we have a second novel um, under contract. So hopefully that'll be coming in a year or two. So uh, she could she could be a, a, one of our stars for a long time. We hope. Yes, I hope so. I think that that yeah. she's a great voice. Yep. Um, so righty. So on to uh, well, let me just I, I assured you, ladies, this a few minutes before we started, but this is a brick. So I'm not going to talk yeah. about it too much, but for. It's a great gift. It's the chef's garden for anybody who's the cook of the house or anybody who loves reading armchair cookbooks, if you will, instead of armchair travel. A huge book. It's 600 plus pages. I know it's a little expensive, but it makes for a spectacular gift for somebody in the household. Mm -hmm. It's not vegan, but it's everything you need to know about vegetables. The, his family, he and his family do own a huge farm in Ohio, and there is a retail area there as well. But just a, just a beautiful book. And what a happy guy. Yeah. <laughs> he looks great. Well, and so Melissa turned me on to this farm bag subscription in town. Mm-hmm. And um, now I'm having to look up all these vegetable recipes because I have like, I have a lot of kale and zucchini yeah, in my they, house right now. Yeah, the, uh, the, the veg <laughs> runneth over, but, yes. but it's nice yeah. and locally sourced. And yeah. Uh, so, yeah, that yeah. one uh, that one will be coming home with me when it comes and, out. And me as well, yes. And right. it'll be right. one well, I take to bed with me and read it like it's a novel, and then it hits me in the face when I fall asleep. <laughs> Damn. Without <laughs> fail. <laughs> Keep the kale, send me the zucchini, okay? <laughs> I'm not a kale person. Uh, well, yeah, listen, if I could send you the zucchini, I would, because I'm, <laughs> we're having this discussion. I like the texture of the zucchini. So. Oh, okay. All right. Well, uh, so you need the book to learn how to fix it I know, right. I do. Absolutely. <laughs> All right. That brings us to our homework uh, project. Uh, do you yeah. guys want to start on this? Do you want me to start? or? Well, okay. So... I, I, we're going to be completely honest. I, we told you this before, but when, when you initially picked this one and Jessica and I saw the cover of it and just the little blurb about what it was about, we were like, okay. No. <laughs> but because you said that you like don't normally get into this kind of book and read it and loved it, we were like, okay, Diane has good taste. So we, we trust her. And Yay. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So I was I was very reluctant about like my husband can tell you how reluctant I was. I was like, I <laughs> really loved it. Yeah. Like I started it and I texted Melissa and I'm like, I started it and it's totally different from what I thought it was. Mm-hmm. And I'm, you know, I'm enjoying it. And um I got through the first half and then when I hit the second half of the book, I couldn't stop reading it. Like I absolutely read it. I just stood at my kitchen counter (laughs) 
because I was cooking dinner and just kept reading and kept <laughs> reading into the night, you know. And so around 10, my husband's like, what are you doing in the kitchen still? And I'm like, I've got to finish this book. <laughs> Good. Excellent. Um, I like that. Well, it would be, well, I, I got so excited talking. I forgot to say it's the paper palace. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, yeah. The paper palace. We're now, talking about the paper palace. By, just a, yeah. Miranda Howley uh, Heller. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And just just to show you the difference in covers, here's the the UK cover that they're going to do. So I don't know if you can see that or not. It's just you know, you oh, see that? Yeah. It's a paper palace, and you know the torn paper is the metaphor on the cover. So. Uh, anyway, like that one so the, that's the UK <laughs> cover. <laughs> So the, for those of you who can't see this, which is everyone who's listening to our podcast. <laughs> That's right. The podcast. <laughs> um, the, the cover for the American version of it is sort of a, a marsh scene, I would call it. It's a soft, blurred, beachy kind of marsh scene. And so I think the initial, because we live in the land of the three named ladies, um, the triple named ladies. <laughs> when we see a cover like this, we expect sort of a a, a real beach read. And this, um, although you can most well, certainly yeah, read it, it on the it beach, definitely could be yeah. that because it it does have elements of that. It's but um, it's, it, but it's um, more literary. It's I think more the literary. the writing yeah. is absolutely gorgeous, and that's what really grabs you about it. Is her her writing is amazing. That's terrific. Yeah, it's a well. It you hit it right in the head. I think it's a literary beach read, uh, but deals with some serious issues. Just a, a word about the author herself. Um, she is very well connected. Even though it's her first novel, she was or has been head of drama at HBO Studios. Wow. So she was involved uh, on a creative uh, way with uh, so many of the huge hits that HBO has had over the years. And then that being so, she's now so well connected with people in media um, in the book media, TV media, movies, what have you, that that's going to be a big step up, too. And we should get great review attention for it. So hopefully you guys can bring it to your uh, to your uh, customer's attention. And uh, well, and, and so, she, she knows how to tell a story in a yeah. very compelling way. She does. So I'm curious about how old is she? That I've I've never met her or even seen. There's a photo of her on the back of the galley. Now, just you know, guessing guessing from that, and that can be very deceiving. She, to me, she looks probably mid forties or yeah, early forties. She could be anywhere from yeah. thirty to fifty, basically yeah. in the in the picture. Um, yeah. But she seems to be kind of on the same timeline as my life, and so um, age wise, roughly, I'm in my fifties, early fifties. Ish. And um, <clears throat> the way she wrote about like growing up in the 60s and late 60s and early 70s and 80s, um, I just found absolutely spot on. Like I, I knew these characters. Um, I, I agree. I'm, I'm a, just a tad older, but, you know, I, I couldn't agree more with how you described that she is spot on. You know, just just a word on how the book is structured. It, it opens in present day, more or less. And the lead character, her name is L. Bishop. Uh, she is 50-ish uh, in, in the book, uh, but it flashes back to her coming of age, uh, growing up um, at this summer uh, cottage, if you will, which is an interior uh, Cape Cod, uh, hence the salt pond look to it. And, and the palace itself is where the family and other friends of the family kind of you know, live their summers. It's a free and easy kind of life. 
Uh, they're very outdoorsy. Uh, and something dramatic happens between uh, Elle and, and a, a young friend of hers uh, early in the book that we, it's not really revealed to almost near the end of the book, but it, it's critical as uh, Elle uh, is speaking or is with us in present day and she comes to a big life decision. So I won't say what that decision is, but no. uh, it, it, it's, uh, I, I think you were right on too when you said the second half of the book, man, you want to find out what happens or where yeah, she's going to go. can't so. stop reading it. Um, yeah. Well, and then I, so I, I had told my husband that I really didn't want to read it. And then I was telling him that I'm like, I'm kind of into it. Like, and, and so I was telling him what was happening. He was like, what are you dark shit? <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, it really, you know, I grew up with my grandparents and a step-grandfather and a very beautiful grandmother who didn't know how to be without a man or without money. And so, yeah, the things um, that she talks about in here, I, I just, it was really well done. Um, and I appreciated it. Um, especially the reluctance of that woman of that age, her mother and her grandmothers to to take their children's side in anything, you know? Very much so. Uh, they're, they're independent, um, older women, I guess, and uh, they let the kids, you know, make their own decisions and be responsible in a way. Uh, but see, they're not helicoptered uh, the way perhaps families are now. You know, if you know what helicoptering, you mean, you yes. yeah. but I don't know if that's the right way to, to state it, but. Um, but they also, you know, put up with a lot from the men in their lives, um, even hmm. to the abuse of their children because they're unwilling to let go of that. Per they, I mean, I, I kind of, the part of it I see is their unwillingness to, like the children have no way out of their worlds. They have to solve their own problems. And sometimes that's not always. Well, perfect. I feel like all yeah. the adults in the book are more concerned with their relationships with other adults than they are concerned with their relationships with their kids. Because it's not just the women in the book yeah. who don't choose the kids or take the kids' sides. The, the, their father is a piece <laughs> of work. <laughs> yeah. <He is. laughs> yes. <laughs> Yeah, he's um, he the yes the father in the book is is tough to make out. I mean, he's in the publishing industry and um, <clears throat> yeah, it's sort of disconnected from reality. Um, yeah. Well, he's he's in his own little world for sure, and uh, different things are important to him perhaps than we would like. But but that's okay. Yeah, yeah it is. No, I think it's a very. Um, mm -hmm honest novel about how life actually is well and i think it's interesting that so diane you have a very specific idea of what you think happens at the end jessica has a very different <laughs> idea and then i have a very different idea i'm curious for for people to read this so we can discuss what they think happens at the end yeah because there is there i think there are several ways to read it and i think it just kind of is dependent upon Maybe what you hope happens. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I, it, you know, I, I always hesitate to say this because um, sometimes, but I think it would actually be a very good book club pick because there's a lot to unpack in this. Yeah, there's a lot to discuss. There's, there's a lot going tons, on. 
tons of things, all kinds of decisions made by the adults and actions taken by the children, which ill-advised perhaps, or who knows what, but, and, and so many decision points for, for Elle throughout her life. And as we flash back and forth from her younger years to, to where she is in her point when she's 50. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But also, um, I think it's a, um, I don't know whether she means it to be this or not the author, but it, um, it's the way she writes about the trauma and the things and the decisions that are made are all very sort of indicative of the decisions that people who have lived through this kind of trauma actually mm -hmm. do make in real life. So. Good point. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yes. Yeah, for sure. So, um, because so, I don't want to say too much and give yep. things no. away because it, it, yeah. But it, it's one of those I, ones that it, you think you know what it's going to be. And then once you start reading it, it is so mm -hmm. completely different from what, what you think. And it, yeah. It seems being interesting to a male audience as well. I don't necessarily think this is a hundred percent female book. Mm -mm, I don't think so. No, I think the two men, um, Peter and uh, I'm drawing a blank on the Jonas. Oh, John Jonas. Uh, you know, they're very well drawn. I think uh, they're very different men. Um, they have different attributes, uh, good things and bad things each. Mm -hmm. But so yes, I, I think it absolutely is a is a book for men or women for sure. Yeah, I really really liked Peter. He was my favorite character. <laughs> he's, he's he's the comfort one. Yeah. <laughs> I liked it a lot. Yeah. I, I liked both of them. Um, I, I did too. I, I really did. Yeah. I really, so. yeah, I really did. And I, um, yeah, it, it, I think it will be a book that I think about for a long time. Mm -hmm. um, and then one we haven't talked about, but I have read and is doing quite well in the store is Patty Callahan's book, um, Surviving Savannah. So it, it is, it has become a hit in Savannah. Yeah. Um, I, I didn't. I didn't mention that one today because I figured that you two were the experts in surviving Savannah. Uh, Patty herself has just been so wonderful. She's made herself available to the every, everywhere, uh, including the, the um, Atlanta Journal Constitution. Did a wonderful also book page feature on her and really explains you know the two parallel stories I guess of that novel as well. So. Uh, and of course, any any book with a name Savannah in it, I guess, is going to be of interest. Yeah. Well, she was really <laughs> nervous about how people in Savannah would take the book, like if, if to, because she was like, I'm pretty sure that if I get things wrong about Savannah, people in Savannah would be more than happy to tell me. And she's right; they, they are <laughs> more than happy so, to tell. Me. <laughs> it has been received well in Savannah thus it far. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> excellent. That's good. To, good to know. Yeah, I I, I thought it would. Uh, would do well there no matter what so and it sounds like it's just being embraced so i love that it was well just just speaking uh just to give you a little preview we have a great fall list mm -hmm. we have a more tolls we have a new novel from him oh. and it's more contemporary it's not 100 contemporary but it's it's set uh it's called the lincoln highway and it's mm -hmm. it's it's um I, I guess sort of a coming of age story in a way but uh, a family whose father has, has lost his, his money, his fortune, and he passes away. And he has a son, uh, two sons, and then uh, two friends that he sort of hook up with for this journey, this uh, literary journey, I guess, on the Lincoln Highway. But just so well written. I am just 
falling in love with it. It's just terrific. And He's uh, so great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 So uh, then we'll have some some good mysteries, and yeah, that's probably our uh, the Lincoln Highway is probably our biggest literary novel. But we have some great stuff coming along uh, for the fall as well. So yeah. another one I want to mention to you guys too is Lauren Groff. You know, of course, she has the uh, new novel. Yeah. Lauren now, Groff. now did you guys go? Did you get in Winter Institute copies or not? We haven't gotten a copy of it yet, but um, okay. but we listened to her speak and like when she was describing this book, it's like all over Jessica's sweet yeah, spot. Like, like, dude, I, yes, please. I will. I will. I will talk well, about it. I will. Well, we'll have the arcs available on May 5th, I think it is. So, but it's downloadable. I know, I know not everybody loves yeah. downloadable yeah. stuff, but, uh, but it, it's all set in, you know, the year, whatever it is, 1197 or something like that. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, it's a feminist novel and it's just wonderful, I think. Um, I, I'm ready. So. Never. Please send me an arc. <laughs> yeah. You will, you will get well, one. None. Yeah. <laughs> I do. <Okay. laughs> My kids so are- we, uh, and uh, one, I just want to give you a, a preview. Just one other thing we're doing in the fall, which is Paula Hawkins. She's the girl on the train. Yeah. yeah. And she did one uh, book after that, which is fine. But uh, her new book is called A Slow Fire Burning. And I love it. Okay. I mean, as okay. with Girl on the Train, every character is thoroughly unlikable. <laughs> and that's the story with the slow fire burning. Just it's is as good or maybe even better, I think, than um, girl on I a train. I learned so, so much from a girl on a train. Like there were things I didn't, I didn't understand the whole vodka and the water bottle thing. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> <laughs> At this soccer game and I'm perfectly sober. I don't understand. <laughs> That was one of those ones that, um, yeah, I didn't care if they all died though. No, I, I mean, they were all terrible people, but like I sat down to read it and I just could not stop reading it. Yeah. Like I read it in one sitting cause I was just like, I must know what happened here. <laughs> well, th- this one uh, reads as fast because it's, okay. <laughs> it's, it's a little hard, maybe the first 50 pages, keeping uh, the characters separate, I guess, delineated. But once you get by that, it, you, you know, boy, you've, you want to find out. <laughs> so it's very well done. Well, looking forward to that. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Did you guys sell the uh, first book we did by Richard Osman? Um, you did the Thursday. Murder Club. Yeah. yeah. Murder yeah. Club. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We'll have a new one from him called The Man Who Died Twice. Okay. And that continues the same mm-hmm. characters and so forth. So the Thursday Murder Club people are in that. And then what else we have? We have uh, uh, Nat Philbrick is back with a, a book on Washington. This is interesting, I think, George Washington, that from when he was elected uh, to when he actually took office, uh, he toured America as it was, as, you know, and, and horseback, mm-hmm. wagon, whatever he had to do from uh, Boston all the way down into the Carolinas and so what Nat Philbrick did uh, is recreate that trip as well as he could. Uh, now, he couldn't ride a horse everywhere, but, you know, he made the round. So it's really uh, a, a, a meditation on where we are now, um, all kinds of today's social issues he goes through and describes, you know, uh, I think in a very engaging manner what Washington went through and how things in some ways maybe haven't changed all that much. Uh, in terms of social issues and, and uh, kind of tying together the Southern or the, you know, the um, 
the uh, the slave states and the northern states, uh, kind of keeping that together. That was so important of the founding of America, and uh, we're still dealing with those issues today. So, but I'm making it sound heavier than it is, but it, it's it's. That's an interesting concept for a book. Like I'm by that. So I one of my favorite professors, whose name was actually Paul Newman. um, He taught um, (laughs) Irish literature and poetry, and he wrote a book of poems based on Washington's trip, and they were called the Washington Poems. And it was really everywhere he stayed during this trip. before he took office. So, um, yes, I'm familiar. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's interesting. And, and one of the thing, uh, Fulbright describes is that Washington, um, every local town wanted to have a big to do when he came, he came through. So he took to kind of disguising, not necessarily disguising himself, but, um, send a big fancy carriage through town. Meanwhile, he hopped on his horse and re- uh, rode through the, the outskirts. Mm-hmm. Kind of, you know, to the wherever he was staying that night, because it just got to be too much after a while. You know, yeah. you just need yeah. to chill out, folks. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, this has been a lot of fun. Thank you for doing. Well, this. thank, thank you. Um, and um, yeah, so um, when my turn comes around again, please think of me. Absolutely. All right. Well, take care, everyone. Yes. Um, get get your COVID shot. You'll have COVID brain. <laughs> <laughs> you'll, you'll be a little nappy after the yeah, second you'll one. You'll be a yeah. little sleepy, but yeah. it's worth it. Um, and um, just keep reading the books. Yes. All right. We'll see you soon. Bye. <laughs>